0: touch with technology with tech stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. stuffworks.com
1: hey there everyone and welcome to tech stuff i'm Jonathan Strickland and I'm Lauren Bolklebaum and today our episode part one of a two Episode comes to us courtesy of a listener request. Richard on Facebook said, How about doing a show on Perkin Elmer? From optics for the war, computers, medical devices, etc., and can't forget the fault faulty Hubble lens that was never tested before sending up to space. A show could have been made just on this blooper. We agree we could have done a show really probably about the Hubble Space Telescope in general, but we're gonna cover the uh, Perkin Elmer part of that in the second part of this episode. Episode because mm-hmm. it's complex, y'all. Uh,
0: yeah, they really do have their hands in a lot of different projects. Uh, partially because, because uh, we're talking about multiple companies and all kinds of mergers and corporate shenanigans that yeah. go on over the course of this company's history. But the more that we started researching, the the more we realized exactly how much they've had their fingers in, how many really important historical events they've had their fingers in.
1: Right, and and part of that complicated nature comes to us from the the uh, the. The fact that two big companies merged together or at least parts of two big companies merged together to form the modern day Perkin Elmer. So the very the Perkin Elmer that exists today is not exactly the same company that made the uh, the ill fated mirror for the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, and in fact, we have to go pretty far back and look at these two individual companies that remained individual companies for a really long time. Uh, to get a real handle on what this company is all about. And also, the stuff that each company makes really complicated science and technology stuff. So that's why this episode is doubly complicated. You got the shenanigans and you got the technology.
0: Uh, we could also, I mean, we could really do stories on any one of these technological innovations that we're going to be talking about. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, let us know if any of them uh, spork, spork your interest. Were, were that? I,
1: I would like it if they would spork the interest. Yeah. I, I um, <laughs> It's true. We could take any one of these and make a full episode about it. Uh, so we're giving you the notes version of a lot of these. We will be giving you some uh, Science 101, which was very important for me because it's been a long time since I've taken any chemistry classes, physics classes. So I needed the reminder. I'm sure some of our listeners do, too.
0: OK, so before we get into all of this, what what is Perkin Elmer? Okay. What do they do?
1: Uh, you know, I wish there were an easy, simple, like, one sentence, like, I don't know what the elevator pitch for Perkin Elmer is other than to say it's an international multi-billion dollar company, and it calls itself a global leader focused on improving human and environmental health. But that that does not give you a full indication of all the stuff they do, and it's pretty heavily geared toward making scientific equipment and processes So sort of the if you think of the stuff that whenever you see like complicated things happening in laboratories, they have their hands in that. So a lot of it in the health industry in particular, especially uh, more recently. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, it's kind of funny because you look back at the origins of all this. And you would never imagine that this incredibly complicated company would spring up from these, grown from yeah. from
0: what it did. Yeah. And so Perkin Elmer was indeed started by two dudes named Perkin and Elmer. But due to the aforementioned uh, Voltron like combination of multiple corporations that we're going to be talking about, we're kicking off by talking about some important people who are neither Perkin Elmer. Nor Elmer.
1: Right. But they are just as important to the company as it exists today as anyone else. And so back in 1931, Professor Harold Doc Edgerton of MIT partnered with two students, Kenneth Germshausen and Herbert Greer, to study high speed photography and stroboscopic techniques. So the idea here was that they wanted to, you know, Photography was still a fairly young uh, um, art and science at this time, and they wanted to be able to make cameras that could take photos of stuff that's in motion without it being really blurry. And so they, they really began to put their minds to this. and They all kind of formed this sort of research partnership. Uh, not necessarily thinking about making a full company at this point, but that was the origin of their part.
0: Uh, meanwhile, in 1937, another partnership would form, and that was between banker Richard S. Perkin, who was 31 at the time, and a court reporter by the name of Charles W. Elmer, who was 65 at the time. And I find their age difference just interesting in the fact that they would go on to do so many things together. Now,
1: what did they bond over?
0: Uh, they were both really interested in astronomy. Um, the, the company first helped import and then design optics and procedures with, with a primary interest in astronomical equipment. Um, and, and this was due to, okay, so, so Perkins' childhood passion was astronomy. He was putting together his own telescopes by the age of 11 and grinding his own lenses by the age of 13.
1: I, I- don't even want to talk about the things I did at age 13. They seem ex- so incredibly <laughs> trivial in comparison.
0: Yeah, I think I was playing a lot of Donkey Kong country at the time. Um, but uh, he, he studied chemical engineering for a year at college, then left for Wall Street, hence the, the banker thing. Um, the, the, two, the two of them actually met when Elmer was delivering an amateur astronomy lecture at the Brooklyn Institute. Um, by the way, the, the Custer Institute and Observatory in New York uh, was named for Elmer's wife. They were really serious amateur astronomers and um uh would begin construction of that public observatory, the, the, the Custer Observatory, um, in 1938. So Perkin and Elmer began importing optical instruments from Europe because the U.S. wasn't manufacturing a whole lot of that at the time, but within a year they would begin manufacturing their own out of New Jersey.
1: And then in 1939, Perkin-Elmer incorporates. Mm-hmm. So uh there was something else that happened right around 1939.
0: Yeah, a little thing you might have heard of World War II. Yeah. Um it 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 but basically broke out around the same time and started creating a huge demand for for field optics, you know, periscopes and rangefinders uh uh gun sites and cameras and all kinds of stuff like that and so perk and Elmer began
1: to branch out at the same time that group that I talked about earlier Edgerton and Germshausen and Greer and I apologize if I'm totally misspelling or mispronouncing rather their names uh that that became known as eG and g which makes life so much easier and they also were being uh pretty instrumental in the war effort we'll talk a little bit about that in just a couple of seconds but 1941. We get into uh, one of the first major products from Perkin Elmer. It was a spectrophotometer. Uh, so what the heck does that mean? I mean, you, you hear spectrophotometer and you start to try and break it down. And there's only so much that a an ignorant person such as myself can do before <laughs> I say, OK, I uh, is it a ghost light meter? No, it is not a spectrophotometer. Spectrophotometer.
0: I'm going to go need to take some different notes.
1: Yeah, well... We'll be right back. Okay, we're back. And now we understand what this is, kind of. No, so a spectrophotometer measures the amount of light that's either absorbed or uh, transmitted, reflected from a, a, a sample object. So you pass a beam of light through a sample. And then by observing the intensity of the light that reaches a detector on the other side, you can determine the Exactly, how much of a particular material happens to be, say, in in that sample? Usually, you're talking about a solution of some sort. Mm-hmm. So you shine the light through, and by observing that, by by measuring the light, you can really determine what sort of stuff is in there and how much of a concentration there is, because different materials absorb different kinds of light,
0: uh, different wavelengths, yep. different colors of light. Um, so yeah, so you can figure out what type of material you're dealing with, or um, or detect. Particular materials in, like, a blood sample, for example.
1: Yeah, really, really useful uh, technology. And in 1946, the United States government awards Harold Doc Edgerton the Medal of Freedom for his work in developing technology for nighttime photography. And you might wonder, well, what's the big deal there? Well, when you're talking about wartime, when you have to go on these missions to try and determine what the enemy uh, uh, fortifications are, what they're, where they are, and you want to be able to take these these images at night. It became incredibly important, and so his work with EG&G became uh, something that was so notable that the government ended up awarding him the Medal of Freedom after World War II. Now we move on to 1947, and EG&G incorporates. So Perkin Elmer had already incorporated, EG&G incorporates, and the only real reason I could find that they incorporated was not because they had intended to make a big company, but was because a certain governmental agency urged them to incorporate, and that would be the Atomic Energy Commission, or AEC. Now, AEC formed after the end of World War II and had the goal of developing atomic energy for peacetime applications. So that raises the question, what sort of peaceful applications was EG&G working on? Uh, how about creating timed and triggered nuclear bombs?
0: Yeah, that's super peaceful. <laughs>
1: So, they were really looking at uh at triggering systems um they, not the bombs themselves they didn't build bombs, but they built the the systems that either would allow a bomb to trigger or a timed system that would then have a bomb go off and they weren't necessarily thinking of bombs just for military purposes as we'll find a little bit later, although I think at this time it was primarily for Military purposes. Uh,
0: yeah, all of those bombs for private sector purposes are. I'm I'm not sure where that's going. I mean, however, in better news, uh, late in, in in that same year, in 1947, Edgerton would publish his first article in National Geographic magazine called "Hummingbirds in Action."
1: Yeah, fantastic uh, contrast to making trigger systems for nuclear bombs. And you, you, if you're wondering what the whole hummingbirds in action thing was, again, he kept working on creating better and better high-speed photography. And he was able at this point to take pictures of hummingbirds and get a clear view of their wings while they were in flight instead of just that blur that you would usually see. Mm-hmm. So, again, more examples of him working in that field.
0: OK, this is a lovely, pleasant note. While we are in this terrific mood, let's take just a quick break for a word from our sponsor.
1: All right, we're back. 1949, we get uh, the P.E. Model 5 a flame photometer from uh, Perkin. Uh, uh, Elmer there. So flame,
0: flame photometer.
1: Flame photometer. Yep.
0: What? What's a flame photometer?
1: Oh, boy. I had to do so much research in this episode. So this is another instrument that helps you analyze materials. Okay. So you essentially burn them to analyze them. So you, I hope you don't need it after you analyze it because you're going to be out of luck. So what you usually would do is you would spray a solution of metallic salts. You would have these metallic ions in a solution that you, you spray into a chamber that has an extremely hot flame. We're talking like 2,300 degrees Celsius.
0: Hot enough to vaporize the sample.
1: Yeah. And then the light given off by the vaporized solution can be analyzed, uh, and certain elements will give off certain types of light w- during this vaporization Wavelength process. of light. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So you'll get different colors that way. And by analyzing those colors, you can determine exactly what those elements are, and their concentration within that mixture. So it's usually used in inorganic chemistry applications. Because, again, you're looking at metallic ions. You're not you're not looking at uh, organics, like carbon-based uh, material. So let's move on to 1950. That's when EG&G perfects an ultra-high-speed photography technique that allows a camera with no moving mechanical parts to take images with an exposure time as short as four millionths of a second. Oof. So there was a very specific reason they wanted to develop this camera.
0: Uh, that was around the same time that that nuclear blast testing was going on.
1: Yeah. So we're we were talking about areas in the South Pacific, uh, uninhabited areas in the South Pacific where uh, the United States was testing nuclear bombs and they needed to be able to take images of this. But the problem was that those bombs give off a little bit of light. And by a little bit of light, I mean a whole bunch of light. So much light. So finding a way to have a camera that could take that image, withstand that much light was really challenging. And they found this way of creating a camera where as soon as that that light hit the camera, it would then activate the shutter without any mechanical parts so it could take that picture that instant. Mm-hmm. And they could get a really good look at what happens the moment after a bomb explodes,
0: yeah, uh, a couple of years later in nineteen fifty two Edgerton would be the photographer who who went to the South Pacific to take pictures of the um h bomb there
1: yeah he uh he stood a ways away,
0: uh several miles yeah,
1: it's not yes. not good to be right at ground zero for that nope uh nineteen fifty one Perkin Elmer offers an infrared spectrophotometer. So essentially, we're talking about just uh an an additional tool here for chemical analysis. And it allowed you to use a different different uh part of the spectrum of light, the infrared spectrum in that type of analysis, which gave you a broader range of materials you could use that that particular process on. Mm-hmm. So important development. I have nothing more to say about it, <laughs> but I do have a lot to say about this one. So let's see <laughs> if I can say it correctly. 1954. Perkin Elmer introduces the Tyselius electrophoresis instrument. Wow. I think I got that on the first try. You did. So uh, I had to sit there. I saw electrophoresis and, you know, kind of like spectrophotometer. I, I see this word. And I'm thinking, I know what some of these syllables mean. <laughs> what the heck is this? Oh, well, we, we
0: actually talked a little bit about this in our episode on how gene therapy works, which was published on December 9th, 2013. Now,
1: come on, Lauren. I don't remember what episodes we do when.
0: I'm aware. I, yes. That's why that's why I'm reminding for for anyone else out there who perhaps has a vaguely faulty memory,
1: kind of like me. <laughs> uh yeah, but so so, but so
0: okay, so what is uh electrophoresis? This is
1: actually really cool and it, it it did start to sound familiar as I was looking more into it. I wish my brain would just hold on to information longer. So electrophoresis is a process where chemists use charged electric fields to manipulate molecules within a solution. So you've got a solution in there. If you use this this uh uh if you apply this um, electric field to the fluid, you can actually move m- molecules around within a solution and thus start to sort them.
0: Uh, right. Uh, by by tuning that field, yeah, you can you can select molecules for for their size or their makeup or or their charge.
1: Exactly. So this means that within a solution itself, which may have lots of different types of molecules in it, you can start to sort things through. Again, very important in chemistry. Not something that I would necessarily ever use, uh, or that anyone with a, in their right mind would ever let me get near, but it's super no, cool.
0: No, no electricity for you
1: ever. Yeah, no, I'm not even allowed to use a computer anymore. I get all my information by talking to this guy on the street. He's nice though. 1955, Perkin Elmer unveils the vapor fractometer. When am I going to land on an instrument that I understand immediately just based upon the name? I what? How,
0: how many degrees do you have in scientific instrumentation? I have, I have
1: zero degrees. Then never. Yeah, it's probably never going to happen. So this is the first commercially available gas chromatograph. Chromatograph. So now this case, I knew what a chromatograph was. That one, I I understood. Um, I've never used one, but I am uh, familiar with what they're supposed to do.
0: That's actually when I had to look up. So good times. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad that we flip back and forth.
1: So in order to understand exactly what a chromatograph is and why it's important, we need to do a little uh chemistry 101. Right. All right. Just to just to define some terms. So first, we're going to define the term mixture, and it's pretty much what you would think it is. A mixture is a substance of at least two or more components. That are mixed together, but do not in any way chemically combine.
0: Right. You can physically separate the components of a mixture.
1: Right. So if you if you thought of like, um, uh, I don't know, iron filings and some non ferrous material like sand and you mix them together, if you had a magnet, you could pull the iron filings out of that without affecting the sand. There's no chemical comb- combining going on there. Right. Then you have solution and a solution is sort of a subset of what a mixture is. So not all mixtures are solutions, but all solutions are mixtures. Uh,
0: right. And in this one in, in a solution, you've got one substance that has been dissolved into another. The the solute is dissolved into the solvent.
1: That's correct. And so it makes it look like it's a single substance because of that uh, that dissolving factor. So salt water, for example, Looks like it's a single substance. It's just it's it's water that happens to be salty. But if you were to boil off the water, the salt would remain behind. Once again, showing that this is truly a mixture. The salt has not chemically bonded mm-hmm. in this case. So uh, you do have to go an extra step there by boiling it. You can't just physically remove it like, you know, you could maybe filter it out a thousand times using very, very fine filters. But that's it still is a lot more work than, you know, your basic macro mixture.
0: Sure, sure. However, compounds are materials in which two or more elements have chemically combined.
1: Right. So salt is an example. Salt water is a mixture, but salt is a compound. Salt is sodium and chloride that has been combined together chemically, and that changes the chemical composition. So you anyone who's done any chemistry knows sodium, for example, explosive when it comes in contact with water, Uh chlorine and its and its or chloride and all of those kind of uh, uh lovely materials not so healthy to be around but sodium chloride when you add the two together totally harmless table salt delicious yeah, yes as lo- moderate amounts people <laughs> moderate amounts so chromatography refers to this broad collection of physical methods that are used to separate and analyze complex mixtures and it gets its name from the practice of using these methods to separate out the various pigments that were found in plants. And each pigment was a different color. So the process became known as chromatography, or if you were to translate it, it would roughly mean to write colors, uh, write W-R-I-T-E. So we still use that term today, even if we're not Really concerned about colors at all? We just want to be able to separate out a mixture.
0: I think in most most cases these days we're not concerned about colors.
1: That's usually the case, yeah. Oh. So
0: in gas chromatography, the the process of separating these components of a mixture out is going to involve first again vaporizing the sample.
1: Right. Yeah. Which makes sense because you want it to be a gas. So if <laughs> because... the sample happens to be liquid or solid, that's that's a problem right there.
0: Uh huh. Um, then you're going to pass the gas through this equipment and the different components in it are going to migrate at different rates based on, on the size or some of the chemical, uh,
1: chemical properties. Properties. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you have, just, just imagine you've got this gas, it's got different types of molecules in it, uh, by, by applying some force to it depending upon what, you know, what method you're using. Cause again, chromatography is a collection of processes. Mm-hmm. Then these molecules of different components move at different speeds.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, usually, what they're moving through is this uh, adsorptive materials. Yes. And okay, that's adsorptive. I did not mispronounce that. That's mm-hmm. that's adsorptive, not absorptive. Um, and I just like saying that word now. Um, and an adsorptive surface is um, I mean basically it's something that stuff sticks to. Yeah. It's a physical process which differentiates it from absorption, which is either chemical or energetic. Right. Um, for, for example, water sticks to sand or silica gel, which is essentially really fancy sand. And mm-hmm. uh, if you want to watch a whole video about that, I, I I talked about it on brain stuff. So you can just search for silica gel brain stuff on your interwebs browser of choice.
1: Yep. And then you can find out all about this stuff. So you then have these two or more c- components within a mixture moving at different speeds against this adsorptive material. And so they're going to stick at different points on this adsorptive surface, which ultimately means you've separated out those materials. Mm-hmm. Very important in chemistry. And the big benefit of the vapor fractometer, haha, you thought we forgot about that. That's the whole reason we had chemistry 101 people. But the vapor fractometer, the important, the reason why it was important was because it didn't require specialists. It didn't require a a highly trained chemist to operate it so that you could separate out these materials within a complex mixture, which meant that you could have lab technicians running this instrument, and then you could have your fancy schmancy scientists doing something else somewhere else. It, it was really kind of a labor saving device mm-hmm. in a lot of ways in the laboratory.
0: Uh, sure. And if you're wondering what exactly this kind of thing is used for, um, it can be it can it can automatically determine, say, like the, the alcohol level in blood or um, the, the flavors or pollutants or other chemical compounds and stuff like water or, or food or booze, which are all important to uh, chemically.
1: These are important things. So 1956, that's when EG&G participates in programs to develop nuclear propulsion engines. I'm just saying that to make people mad. Nuclear propulsion engines for space vehicles. Uh, they also start to develop commercial products for the first time, including flash tubes and high speed measurement instruments. Those flash tubes will become uh really interesting in a few moments, too. In 1958, EG&G supports the AEC Plowshare Program. This is where we're talking about the peaceful use of nuclear explosives. Well, yay. Yeah, so instead of trying to, you know, weaponize nuclear bombs, they're talking about using it to do things like dig canals or harbors or look for natural gas.
0: Uh Yeah, it was around that time that a treaty was signed to ban nuclear weapons testing, yeah?
1: Yeah, lasted about two years, so yay woo yeah 1959 this was a fun one uh, an interesting little bit. Edgerton joins a a famous fellow Jacques Cousteau yes and uh, they use EG and g underwater cameras and light sources to do ocean exploration Aww. And I get the feeling that Edgerton was uh, it really was you know like an adventurous sort and uh, truly brought his expertise in photography to lots of different fields.
0: He, he sounds, you know, although I hadn't heard the name, I think, before we started doing this episode, he sounds a little bit like a science rock star of the, of the 1960s-ish era. I kind of wish that that I had heard of him before. Yeah,
1: yeah. We might, Maybe one day we'll do a full episode just on his uh, contributions, because they do go outside of just EG&G. Mm-hmm. So in 1962, MIT scientists used EG&G xenon flash tubes to shine a light on the surface of the moon.
0: Like from Earth. Yeah, like flashlight on the moon.
1: Right. So, like you know, normally the light on the moon is coming from the sun. Not this time. It's coming from a xenon flash tube. That's that that is wild. Amazing. 1963, uh, Perkin Elmer introduces the atomic absorption spectrophotometer. And I know what you're thinking. Okay, what does that mean? <laughs> well. Don't worry, I looked into it for you. So it's an instrument that atomizes a sample, usually by applying a whole lot of heat to it.
0: Again, we like burning stuff here in science.
1: Yep. And then the spectrophotometer shines light through that atomized sample. And elemental atoms absorb light, but only at a particular wavelength specific to that element. Mm -hmm. So sodium would absorb certain wavelengths and potassium would absorb other wavelengths. So once you know that, once you know which elements absorb which wavelengths... Then if you shine a light through this atomized mixture and have a detector on the other side and you detect four specific wavelengths and, you know, you know how much should be coming through and you see how much is actually coming through. That tells you you can
0: subtract and figure out how much of any given element is in your sample.
1: Exactly. Lauren, you beat me to it. That's exactly right. So it's one of those things where, you know, it's a kind of an ingenious way of figuring out what was in that stuff you just blew up.
0: Uh, And in a much more specific atomic level way than any of the previous burning and or spectrophotometer uh, methods that we have previously described.
1: Right. Okay. so we've got a lot more to talk about, both EG&G and Perkin Elmer, including the point where these two companies shake hands and come buddy-buddy with each other. But as you can already tell, this is very complicated. So we're going to take a break. So we can get some cupcakes that are sitting outside the the door for us,
0: and macarons,
1: and macarons, yeah. And uh, we're going to enjoy those immensely. Uh, meanwhile, why don't you guys enjoy talking to us? Send us send us messages, guys. Send us emails. Send us messages on Twitter and Facebook and Tumblr. We want to hear from you. We've heard from several folks. This this whole episode is uh, based off of a suggestion. Your suggestion can become our next episode. Just send us an email, techstuff at discovery.com, or drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, using techstuffhsw, and we will talk to you again really soon.
0: <laughs> For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.